following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 6, 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father, who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Well, with the new year uh, started, I thought I would help you out with your weight loss goals and preach a sermon on fasting. Uh, You know, that's actually a joke. I'm not if I ever do that, you can go ahead and remove me from this pulpit. I'm not into the gimmicky, sort of like help you, 10 ways to have a better whatever. We, we are people here that are devoted to the word of God, um, and so we preach exegetically at Sacred City Church. We typically hunker down in one book of the Bible, and we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through that to get, so I don't get it, you know, my hobby horses, the things that I, my pet doctrines, the things that I like to talk about, I don't get to do that. I get to let the word of God dictate where we're going here as a church, and so that's what we do. We're going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is um, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel, the first gospel in the New Testament. And we've been going verse by verse or section by section over the last couple months of unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, which is really a prolific, maybe the most prolific um, discourse that's ever been given in the course of human history, where Jesus, the God-man, takes his disciples up on a hillside to tell them what the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, before this, he's been announcing the arrival of the kingdom. He told them that the kingdom of heaven isn't just something that's out there in the future that will one day become true, but telling them that the kingdom of heaven is here and now. It's unfolding before us. And he's telling his disciples what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and what that looks like to live as a kingdom person. And one of the things that Jesus says at the end, or excuse me, at the beginning of Matthew chapter five is to be a kingdom person, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes. Now in the, in the first century, those were like the super religious people. They were the people who, if anybody knew God, it was them. And Jesus is saying to the, the, the everyday ordinary humans who are on the hillside, right, the fishermen, the carpenters, the homemakers, those people, is like, you have to have a righteousness that outpaces the most religious people that you know. And the question is then, how do we do this, right? And Jesus even says you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And one of the misconceptions with that, that verse is thinking of a sort of a moral perfection, that I have to get my life all squared away, everything has to have a nice pretty bow tie, all my T's crossed and I's dotted. It's gotta be this, this perfect life, right? There's no qualms about it. But what Jesus is actually talking about is not a moral perfection, but rather it's a wholehearted, whole life orientation to who God is and to live according to his ways. Jesus has been telling us, here's how you live the blessed life. Here's how you live life with the grain of God's created order. And Jesus has been going through and telling us what this looks like, what true righteousness 
looks like. Now, what Jesus has been getting at after looking through this first, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter six, he's been talking about the human tendency to short circuit true righteousness. This sort of like bypass authenticity and, and move into a counterfeit righteousness that rather than having uh, uh, virtue deeply embedded inside of us and it sort of bubbles up over the top like a cup overflows, we tend to have a veneer of righteousness that on the outside, it looks like we're all put together, that we've got things going for us, but on the inside, it's just like inner chaos. It's not pretty. And Jesus is talking about this, the contrast of, of this deeply embedded virtue that overflows into true righteousness and the veneer of righteousness. And what he's trying to communicate to his listeners is that you can, you can try to get it all together on an external appearance matter, and if you do that, what, what is happening is you essentially empty yourself of the reward that the way of blessedness is meant to give you. So it's not just that you get a blessing for living in this way, that the way itself leads you into human flourishing, that there's something about it that just unleashes your full potential and there's a deep satisfaction that comes in this. And nobody was more guilty of this in the first century uh, of like of empty, uh, emptying themselves of this reward uh, and living into this, this veneer of righteousness than the Pharisees and scribes. It sounds like as you read Matthew chapter six, Jesus is out for blood against these super religious people. He, he's, he's being critical of the way that they do their religiosity and he's saying this isn't the way. Now Jesus, as he's critiquing the religious, he calls them the hypocrites actually, uh, is, is the word he uses for them, the Pharisees and the scribes. He, he's critiquing them because they make a spectacle of their spirituality, right? They, they're trying to elevate their goodness in a way where, where people can see it and, and give them sort of applause, give them sort of uh, an affirmation for wow, that guy, that guy really must know God. They've got their life together. And the ways that they've been doing this, as we've seen in the past, is they pray in public, they stand up in the synagogues and make a spectacle of their, their prayer life rather than going to their prayer room, right? Getting on their knees in the morning in their own sanctuary of their homes to go before God. They, they make a spectacle of it. Or also with giving to the needy, instead of just doing it in secret and, and being, having this secret generosity, they make it public. So people would look at them and say, wow, they, they're doing it, they've got it together. And so here we come to another thing where, where they're doing the right things, but for the wrong reasons. Because all of these things that they're doing, they're virtuous, there's something honorable about, honorable about them, but Jesus is getting to the heart, their intent. Why are they doing this? And the next thing that Jesus gets to, that these hypocrites, these actors, these performers are doing, is fasting in a way where they get sort of seen. They f now fasting is more than just a health trend. Um, if, if you pay attention to any sort of like, you know, Instagram fitness or uh, any sort of streams of thought about how to, how to keep your life in check and live a healthy life, life, probably part of it is gonna involve some sort of fasting, intermittent fasting. But the fasting that Jesus is talking about goes beyond sort of health trends. It definitely goes beyond health trends. It's more about a, a spiritual, it's an ancient spiritual practice that is meant to open us up to more of God. It is an act of self-denial. It's a, ref a refrain from, from partaking in the creaturely elements that oftentimes we need, right? Things like food and drink, refraining from those things in order to feast spiritually. And typically when we talk about fasting, um, 
fasting is part of it, and then it's usually accompanied with, with more um, times of prayer or scripture reading or study. So I, I'm refraining from this thing to give myself more fully to God in another way. Now we see this all through the Old Testament and the New Testament even. We see several reasons for spiritual fasting. Um, one of them is mourning. When you go through the Old Testament, you see um, Nehemiah fasted when he saw the, the walls of Jerusalem had been torn down. He sees it and he fasts. He's mourning. He's grieving. And so he, he gives himself to fasting. It's an expression of his grief. We see other places uh, fasting as an expression of repentance. When Jonah goes eventually to Nineveh and preaches about the judgment that's going to come and if they, they don't turn and turn back to God, well we see the city repents and, and part of the repentance is fasting. They tear off their clothes and put on, heap up ash and sackcloth upon themselves and they fast to devote themselves, sort of this reset, a spiritual reset that happens to devote themselves more fully to God and the change that he wants to do. We see in other places that fasting can be an act of petition. Um, Ezra, the prophet Ezra, was asking for protection from God, um, and so he's petitioning God, would you give us this provision, will you give us rain or guidance? You see this sort of theme repeated all over through the Old Testament, even in, in the book of Acts, we see before Paul commissioned some elders, they fast to make sure they're making the right move, making the right decision. It's for petition, asking for guidance, for uh, sustenance. But really what the, the root of fasting is meant to do, it's supposed to be an act of devotion. Whether we're mourning, we're repenting, we're petitioning God, we're trying to, in, in fasting, we're throwing off the things that easily entice us, that can keep us distracted, and to be more present with God, to deepen our relationship with him, deepen our trust. Now fasting is an honorable and virtuous thing. It, it's, it's something that we've kind of peeled away from. Um, it, in the Old Testament, New Testament days, it was something that would happen often. Um, into the 18th uh, century, it sort of kind of wore off a little bit, but, uh, but it's something that's honorable and virtuous, and it's meant to be a spiritual exercise that deepens our dependence and our maturity in the faith. Now, this is something that devout and God-fearing uh, God people do. It demonstrates, it's a demonstration of, of piety in a lot of ways. It's a spiritual discipline that gives us more than we give up. Because in, in, in giving up food or drink or whatever it might be, what we're hoping for is that we get more of God, that it opens us up more to him, that it brings our hearts more in tune with God. Now, what Jesus is condemning here is not necessarily the act of fasting, but the manner in which the hypocrites, the Pharisees and scribes go about fasting in a way that they're hijacking, they're hollowing out the substance of fasting just to have the veneer of it. What we see here, Jesus is telling us, is that they, they're fasting not to, get, not to deepen their relationship with God, not to grow in, in like Christian maturity, but they're doing it to have this appearance, to put out this image before men. Now this is what Jesus says in verse 16 here of Matthew chapter six, and he says, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now Jesus is telling us here, 
Like e- even through all the, the previous um, sermons that we've preached, the, the previous passage we've seen, that there is this, this repeated refrain that these Pharisees, these hypocrites are doing things not, not for the sake of God, not out of true virtue, not out of true righteousness, but in order to be seen by man. They are literally starving themselves for attention. Think of that, like fasting and refraining from eating and refraining from drinking. They're starved for attention to get the applause of man. They want people to look at them and say, wow, they, they got it together. They, they want them, other people to think highly of them and to affirm them in their religiosity. Now, unless you're at the dinner table with somebody who's fasting, it's pretty hard to know if they're fasting or not, right? Because typically, you know, we eat three times a day and there's a lot of space in between where we don't eat. And so it's hard to tell if they're fasting. And so in order for, for the, the, the hypocrites to make sure everybody else knew that they were fasting, they would do a couple of things. They had a, a couple of optic techniques to exaggerate their appearance. They would look gloomy. They'd rub some dirt on their face. They'd, you know, they'd, they'd take this like inward hunchedness about them, right? Because they're so hungry and they're famished, their bodies collapsing in on themselves. And if that's not enough, they'd, they'd literally put like makeup on to make it look like uh, that, that they're just in a, an exaggerated state of, uh, you know, they're deprived. They make their hair messy. In order that people would look at them and say, oh, wow, that person, they're pious. They must be fasting for us. How, how spiritual of them. Now, this is ultimately what they want, right? The the Pharisees, the hypocrites, what they're after is the attention and the affirmation, the approval of man. And by doing this and, and making this their pursuit, they void out the virtue of fasting and aim for the the applause of the masses rather than the attention of their maker. They have this approval hunger, a hunger for affirmation, but the problem is they're feeding it in the wrong place. Now this is where we have a lot more in common with the hypocrites, with the Pharisees, the scribes, than we tend to want to admit. See, because regardless of if you're a Christian or or you're like a a non-spiritual person, you have this hunger for affirmation. You have this nagging desire that's embedded in your humanity where you want to be seen. You want to be affirmed by others. It's something that God created humans to want. And this craving manifests itself throughout your entire life. This isn't something that just ebbs and flows. This is something that for your whole life, it's part of your existence. So think of it as a kid, right? you know, if you've got kids, you can think back of this. If you've got nieces and nephews, like when toddlers do things that they know are cute, they do that thing and then they look over their shoulder to see if anybody saw them, right? They want to make sure that you saw them do that cute thing and they got that big old goofy grin on their face. And as kids grow up, it morphs into building Legos or drawing pictures. Right, they do this piece of work and they want to show it to mom and dad or whoever they give it to so they go, oh wow, that's so amazing. They, they're, they're feeding that craving. As you grow up through middle school into high school, you want to be the good one. right? Show that you're a good athlete, a good student, a good musician. Whatever, whatever your little niche is, you want to prove yourself to do something where you would be applauded, where people say, yeah, 
you're killing it. They're, they're just, you, you hunger for that affirmation because you want to be commended. We want that. Now, it's not a bad thing. Like I said, it's something that God created in us to have, to desire that affirmation. And, and really, when you think about it, it's a skill we all need to have in order to succeed at life. Like we ha- need to have this, t- this draw of affirmation. It gives us confidence to navigate the world. It gives us the ability to thrive as ourselves, like with our giftings, with the things that God have pr- has programmed in us to do in this world. It's this desire that we have, a God-given desire we have to be seen. We want to, we want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to be acknowledged, we want to be validated. We were made for that. We were made to have that affirmation just as our bodies were made to have the nourishment of food. Now the problem with this is that we tend to belly up to the wrong table to satisfy that craving. When when that craving for affirmation is, is loud, we tend to go to the wrong places to feed that. Because we were meant to be seen and heard and affirmed by God. It's like what we see in the Garden of Eden where God created Adam and Eve. And what did he say? This is very good. See, God was meant to be the one who gives us that affirmation. Yet we go to other places. We go to man to get that affirmation that we were made to hear. We go to our peers, our superiors, our spouses. Right? We want to hear that from people, that, that affirmation of you are good. I see you, I acknowledge you, I hear you. And so we go to all of these other places to satisfy that craving we have for external validation. Now here's the thing. Who we aim to please will determine what we do to get that affirmation. Who we aim to please will determine what we do to get that affirmation. So if I'm trying to get in with the mom's group, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to put like a, a, you know, a beautiful Instagram-worthy life out in front of me and say, well, that's what I gotta do to gain their approval. 1 Samuel 16 says that man looks to the external, but God looks to the heart. So here is a differentiation between what we do to get the applause of man and to get the affirmation we're looking for from God. See, God looks at the heart. Man looks to the surface. If I'm trying to get the applause of the masses, all I have to do is look the part. All I have to do is put out this veneer. All I have to do is put this image out where people look at it and say, yeah, looks like they got it. But with God, he goes to the heart. So if, if we're trying to please man, what are we gonna do? We're gonna put in the extra hours at work, right? Because we wanna hear that applause from our boss or our, our customers. And, and what we do to, in order to do that is we put um, home life, family life, church life on the altar of that applause and affirmation that we're looking for, right? Or, or we, we try to keep a West Elm worthy home for Instagram and Facebook and all the people who follow you but don't really know you to show off how cute our kids are, how good we are at keeping our homes nice and tidy, right? We're, we're just trying to look the part. We call a truce with our spouse when we get into missional community, right? Oh, everything's good here. Like, no, no need to press us into the gospel. We got it under control. We're just fine, thank you. Like, we don't want to expose the issues and the struggles that we have in our lives. So we just act like we got it together because we're trying to please man. Like we're not actually trying to please God, it's about pleasing man. And so we tend to do the polite thing. Oh, this is expected of me. And you do it 
but the whole time you're grumbling underneath of it. You know, that's what it is. You've got this bitter attitude in your heart, but you're doing the right thing, so that, that must be fine. And what we see here is there's this discontinuity between the internal and external life. Right, the external life, trying to please man. The internal life, it's not backing it up. There's a difference between the reality of my life and what I project for the world to see. So let me ask you, who do you look to for affirmation? Who are you looking to right now? Is it your boss, your spouse? Who do you constantly go to that it's like, and if you don't hear from them, if you don't get that affirmation from them, it just ruins you. You know what I'm talking about? Like you're striving, it's like I just wanna be in their good graces and you get it, you're used to get it and all of a sudden it gets pulled away from you. Maybe they have a bad day or you have a bad day and you lose it and it crushes you. What are you willing to do in order to feed that craving to please man? Now some people might be in the pews right now saying, I don't need nobody. I don't need your affirmation. I don't care what you think. I'm finding myself. See, this, this is a product of our culture that peddles the gospel of self-esteem, that if you just feel good about yourself, you don't need any, to hear anything from other people. But that's actually contrary to the way that God made you. God made you desire external affirmation, but you're saying, hey, I, I'm, I'm completely rebelling against God's design for me. So you don't listen to the hate. I don't need those haters. Everybody's a hater. I don't need their... And really what you're just trying to do is to give, convince yourself of what you couldn't convince other people of. You're just trying to convince yourself. You're trying to please yourself. See, the irony of this whole thing is you're still concerned with appearances. The appearance that you're concerned about maintaining is that you don't care what people think. It's still there. Affirmation is part of our human needs. We need it. There's no way to get around it. And a poor diet of affirmation that comes from man will end up ruining you, right? It, if you just go to the convenience store to grab Doritos and candy bars and Mountain Dew, right, and that's all you eat, that will tank your life. And I know that's probably some like 20-year-old that's like, prove it, you know? It's like, watch me. But it'll eventually catch up with you. You get diabetes, you get overweight, you have all kinds of health issues, You'll really have a reason to be afraid of COVID. It'll catch up with you. It will deteriorate you. Now, the catch about this is, is those things are very accessible. It's really easy to come across Doritos and Mountain Dew and candy bars. Like anywhere you go, like any corner that you go to in our city, you can probably find it somewhere. It's easy to find. Now, it's the same is true with the approval of man. It's accessible. If you can put out a veneer, you can get it, right? It's easy. It's easy to get it. Because I'm just worried about the surface level. I'm not worried about the depth. Now, Jesus says that hypocrites get their reward, right? Those people who, who go out and try to get the attention of man, the ones who are trying to please man and get the applause of them, Jesus says they get what they want. They get it. People, good for you. But guess what? It's the law of diminishing returns. They get unsatisfied with it. 
It puts them on the treadmill of trying to prove themselves over and over and over. And ultimately, it leaves you more hungry and empty than you were before because that was not made to satisfy you. And then what happens? You start living the life of a stuntman. You're trying constantly to one-up yourself in order to stay relevant, in order to hear the applause from people, right? It's like, oh, you did that last week. I don't need a, you know, whoop de doo That was so last week. So you gotta step it up. A bigger stunt, a bigger, a bigger gesture of piety. It's just the life of the treadmill. And that life is antithetical to the good life that Jesus wants to give us. It literally, like to live on a treadmill, constantly trying to prove yourself to man, that, that literally your identity ebbs and flows on what other people think about you, sounds like hell. In fact, I'm sure that's part of the equation of what hell is like. Your identity just constantly wrapped up in what other people think. Other sinners think of you. That's not how citizens of the kingdom of heaven live. See, this is the difference between true righteousness, true, a true citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and the phony veneer of religion, right? People who are posing. This is the difference. Kingdom people don't need the approval of man because they get it from God. See, that's what Jesus is getting after here in verse 17. He says, truly I say to you, they've received the reward, those man pleasers, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. What's he saying? Hey, you don't have to look the part of a faster. In fact, look good, comb your hair, Wash your face. Don't put on this whole appearance thing to get people to think, oh yeah, you're fasting, right? Jesus is saying, you don't have to do that because God sees what you're doing. Our Father who sees in secret will reward us. Jesus isn't worried about the kingdom people generating some sort of spectacle, but a true secret righteousness, and it's in this secret where God rewards us. Now, C.S. Lewis talks about this um, in Mere Christianity. You better buckle, buckle up, because this year, I'm planning on reading all of C.S. Lewis's uh, nonfiction books, and so it's like sermon uh, reference after sermon reference to C.S. Lewis, so buckle up here, but here it is. Here's the start of the year. C.S. Lewis says that this is both our only comfort and supreme terror to know that God sees in secret. It's our only comfort and our, our supreme terror. Because if God can see my good deeds that I do in, in secret, right, to, to have that affirmation of, yeah, you do them, do it in secret, God sees, he rewards you. But that means that God sees all my secret sins. That means that God sees past my actions to my intentions. God knows my inner thoughts, all of the stuff that you're trying to hide from other people seeing. God sees it. And so in some way, we go from not having the attention that we want Right, we're craving that attention to now God's attention is on us in a place where it's actually terrifying. It's like Dwight Schrute. He's like, you can't handle my full attention. It's like, we can't handle God's full attention. It's terrifying. It leaves us fearful and likely to run and hide because instead of the reward that we're hoping to get from our secret good deeds, condemnation, judgment awaits us, not reward. Now this is where Listen, and if you don't feel that way t- to any degree, that just tells me that you don't understand the gospel, right? Because you don't understand how sinful your heart is. 
Yet this is where Jesus stands to meet us. Jesus looks at us. He sees our brokenness. He sees our our secret sins. And he doesn't push away. He knows us to our core, yet he stands exceedingly ready to receive you. All your mess, all your brokenness, all your sin. He locks his eyes on you and he sees you to your core. And listen, here's the thing. It's like some, some people want to preach to Jesus that's all ooey-gooey, gushy emotions, right? Oh, it's, it's not, you're not that bad. It's, it's okay. No, Jesus is filled with truth and grace. So when Jesus looks at you and sees you, he says, yep, you're bad. Actually, you're worse than what you thought. So your secret sins, when God sees them, are far worse than what you thought they were to begin with. He says, it's that bad. Tim Keller says, you know, the gospel is we're we're far worse than we thought. But at the same time, we're way more loved than we dare to imagine. See, Jesus is filled with truth in that he identifies the fact that there's a lot wrong with us, but he's full of grace in that he wants to give us what we don't deserve. And Jesus does this. He shows this reality of grace and truth that he upholds the reality of our secret sins, the brokenness of our lives, the, the way that we have failed to be righteousness, truly righteous, and the, and the ways that we've pretended to be righteous when we weren't. Jesus sees all that and says, listen, I'm going to take your place. And he gives us his. He exchanges with us. See, Jesus was the only one who could live a perfectly righteous life. Not not just at the the veneer of righteousness, but all the way down to the core. Jesus' main focus was to please his Father in heaven. And so everything that he did was good because he was concerned with pleasing the Father. So Jesus successfully navigated this broken world without once succumbing to temptation. Not once was he concerned about the applause of man over the approval of his heavenly father. And so he lives this truly righteous life moment by moment, fully in line with God, a wholehearted alignment to the reality of who God is. This is what true righteousness is. And and when you think about it, Jesus should be rewarded for that. Jesus should be praised and uh, uh, elevated, or I can't think of the word, exalted. There it is. Jesus, that's what he should be getting. That's the reward his actions have earned him. But instead, he takes on our curse for our unrighteousness. He takes our place and he goes to the cross. All of our sin is piled upon him, nailed to the cross. He pays it in full. And so we are forgiven not just forgiven, but then clothed with the righteousness of Christ when we put our trust in him. See, this is the only way to access true righteousness is by surrendering yourself to Jesus. And when we get clothed clothed with the righteousness of Jesus, when the Father looks at us, what he sees is not all our imperfections, not our unrighteousness, but what he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. And he can reward us, not on, our, on, on account of our misdeeds or even the good works that we've done, but on what Jesus has done. See, it's all about Jesus. 
Now, unless you see how badly you're longing for this affirmation, right? Because when God looks at us, he sees Jesus, and he, he gushes over us. It might sound weird, but it's true. God has a love for us that is intense, and it's magnified through the righteousness of Christ. And unless you see how badly you long for the affection of God, right, that, that, that really that's the only thing that can satisfy or scratch that itch for approval, this won't be good news. See, you, you can get wrapped up in the culture's version of a gospel of self-esteem. You, you can jump on the treadmill of people pleasing. It's like, I don't need that as long as I got other people's approval. And guess what? You're going to get burned out. That's gonna leave you burned. Because God has put a desire in our hearts to live toward righteousness, to live to please him, and we're just short-circuiting the way that God's made us to live. But if you admit the reality of your brokenness, if you see the beauty of the sacrifice of Christ and you surrender to it, Jesus will instantaneously declare you righteous. That's what we get. It's like, it's like a, a legal assertion that you in Christ are righteous with your faith in him. But here's, here's the kicker, that as we have this righteousness in the gospel, we live into it, that the spirit is conforming us to live into that righteousness where there's this progressive sanctification, this progressive righteousness that's unfolding in our life where we actually start to look more and more like Jesus. This is what Jesus is after. He wants to change us at our core. He wants to see true righteousness come out of our lives, that virtue gets implanted and embedded so that we may live the good life. Now, this mainly takes place in secret. This is what Jesus is telling us. This primarily, this, this virtue, this righteousness, this true righteousness mainly takes place in, in secret. Now, this doesn't mean that there's never a place for public expression. Think of it like an iceberg, okay? Like the bulk of the iceberg is submerged underwater. But there's always that little tip that's peeking out. See, that, that's what truly righteous people are meant to look like. Now, what supports the tip from coming out of the water is all of the mass that's underneath of it. This is what it looks like to be right. That the, 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 the righteousness, the true righteousness that's underneath leads to what's visible in our lives. That's why Jesus says, let your light shine before all men that they would see your good works, right? It's, it's bolstered by the true righteousness that you've embodied in Christ. Now, where does this leave us with fasting? See, Jesus, hey, this is true righteousness. This is how you get it. This is how you live into it. But where does that leave us with fasting? What should we do? Because that's what it's about, fasting. Jesus says, he doesn't discount fasting. He says, when you fast, twice he says, when you fast, See, Christians are expected to fast. Jesus is questioned at one point um, by the scribes and Pharisees, like, why aren't your disciples who are with you fasting? Like, that's, that's what pious people do. And Jesus says, there's no need to fast when the bridegroom is here. But Jesus says, there's gonna come a time where they fast, where we go back to that petition, we go back to that, that asking for the presence of God, that devotion, the repentance, all of those things, that Jesus says, hey, this is gonna be part of the Christian life. So he says, when you fast, we ought to be devoting ourselves to God in a way where fasting is part of our spiritual disciplines. Maybe it's a, it's a weekly thing, maybe it's a monthly thing, maybe it's like a quarterly thing, but to give yourself to fasting. Now, 
there's a misconception here that we, we would fast in order to get God's attention. That's not the case. We fast in order to turn our attention to God. That's why we fast. John Piper talks about how, how easy it is for us to get pacified by all of the creaturely things that this world has to offer, right? Easy to be entertained, easy to be swept up in, in sort of the, the day-to-day grind. And he's saying fasting gives us the opportunity to sort of pull back, to wean ourselves away from those things that tend to occupy us and full, fully focus on the person of Jesus, deepening our relationship with him. And really what this is meant to do is to, to strengthen our awareness of the affirmation that we receive in the gospel. Again, C.S. Lewis says that God is the fuel that man is meant to run on. See, to fast, though though it seems like we're emptying ourselves of the physical things that we do, and it could be like social media, it doesn't have to be just food and drink. Social media, shopping, browsing, internet aimlessly, right? You can all go ahead and give up fasting uh, the, the biased news outlets. I would love it if you do that. It'd help us out a lot in, in the discipleship making process. All the different things that we can do to fast, to pull ourselves away from the creaturely things, our instinctual things, and directing our gaze on Jesus. And when we do this, we lean into the affirmation of God. We lean into the comfort of God that wants to give us. We realize that God's eyes are set upon us and he is pleased with us in Christ. And so we fast from the creaturely comforts and feast upon the true comfort that's in Jesus. We don't want to miss the main course. See, all the, all the good gifts in this life, because like when we're fasting, we're not necessarily fasting from bad things. If, you're, if you've got bad things, go ahead and fast for that indefinitely. But like the good things, like food, and I don't know, TV has a place, entertainment has a place, but we're, we're taking ourselves away from the appetizers to feast on the main course. And this is really what our reward is to have, to sink our teeth into the main course. And that is to have Jesus. To know that we have the eyes of God upon us. He hears us, he sees us, he loves us. He wants to give us his affirmation and tell us that that we are loved and kept in the gospel. And as we sink our teeth into that reality, guess what, that's going to spill over into the righteous works that Jesus is wanting to accomplish through us. It propels us to live righteously as citizens of heaven. So as we come to Lord's Supper this morning, we remember this reality. Excuse me. We come to the table to feast on Jesus. His grace, his love, his mercy that's for us. To remember that we've been clothed in righteousness. And because we're clothed in righteousness, there's no reason to run and hide from God. There's no reason to be on the treadmill of the approval of man that we can know we are loved and the body and the blood of Jesus proves this, that he loved us so much he gave his life up for us. As we take this body and blood, take in the elements of Jesus, would that be what propels us to live righteously in this broken world? Father, we, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. We thank you for the mystery of the gospel, something that we just don't understand. Why on earth would you be mindful of us? Why would you look at us and be moved to compassion and want to give us your affirmation when there's so much that we've done wrong and continue to do wrong? We thank you for the gospel that moves in, the gospel that, that upends our fears, the gospel that upends our performance and allows us to rest in the righteousness of Christ. 
Would that be our reality, God? Would you bring renewal to this church as we dwell on the gospel more and more? A revival where our hearts are sparked and hunger for you in ways that nothing in this world can satisfy and give us a singular focus on Jesus, but also a revival that leads to good works, to demonstrating and proclaiming the goodness of Jesus, to pointing to the reality that that Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy. Thank you, Jesus. Satisfy us now as we take your body and your blood. We ask this in your beautiful name. Amen.